Uh, I must have been too busy rolling my eyes to to notice this moment. (laughs) It's a good it's a good scene. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on, one of you nuts has got any guts? Let's put a smile on that face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me. Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be. I have a voice. Ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So today we are taking a look at Nixon, Oliver Stone's movie, and Insecurity. And to do that, I'm bringing back, like, I guess now a really common uh, guest on the show keeps showing up. So Ben Zook, who was last here for our Dog Day Afternoon episode, is back again to talk about Nixon. Thanks for coming on again. Oh, you're welcome. And, uh, you know, I'm an expert on insecurity, so I'm happy to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's not about the movie. It's about the theme. That's totally why I brought you on. Just like, who would I who's insecure? Ben Zook. Let's let's bring him on. Uh, so uh, before we kind of get into all the psychology and all that stuff, uh, do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? Sure, you know that's that was a, it. Really, would have been good for me to prepare uh, that, but uh, in terms of Oliver Stone, I I mean I, I feel kind of lazy just recommending movies based on the director. But in regards, you know, to us talking about Nixon, I know you're doing this, you know, uh, in preparation for his movie Snowden coming out. So it seems to make sense to recommend to Oliver Stone movies that maybe people have seen or have not seen. Uh, one that people have overlooked, much like. Nixon uh, would be the film that he made directly prior to Nixon, uh, Heaven and Earth, a film I really hold in high regard and has some very interesting uh, elements to it. Um, So I'm going to recommend that one. Okay. And then... Um, have you seen a lot of Stone or are you kind of... He's uh, one of those directors that I feel like I have and then someone will bring up a movie that he directed and I'm like, nope, missed that one because he's had, you know, a lot of big films. But I feel like I've seen at least the majority of them. Have you seen Born on the Fourth of July? Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, well, let's go a little bit rarer than that. <laughs> <laughs> Just dying uh, to give me homework, man. <laughs> uh, let's do uh, let's do talk radio. Okay, that one I haven't seen. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right before Born on the Fourth of July, right? Like, yep. right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. I I yeah, um. around the... <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for those recommendations. Appreciate it. More homework for me and hopefully for the viewers. And actually, um, for the listeners at home, we actually have, if you follow me on Letterboxd, that social media movie account, uh, we have a list of all the movies that people have recommended. So if you can't remember one that somebody mentioned you're interested or you just have nothing better to do than watch a shitload of movies, there's, there's I think, like 80 or 90 up there now. So check that out. All right, uh, so we're going to take a break, talk about insecurity, and then bring Ben Zook back to talk about Nixon. All right, so it's time to talk about insecurity, and we can't really talk about this without talking about security, right? So emotional security is the measure of the stability of an individual's emotional state. So insecurity is a feeling of general unease or nervousness that can be triggered by seeing yourself as vulnerable or inferior in some way or a sense of vulnerability or instability which threatens your own self-image or ego. This concept is related to psychological resilience. They both 
take into account the effects that setbacks have on us as individuals. But the difference is resilience concerns overall coping, also with reference to like a person's socioeconomic situation, whereas emotional security specifically focuses on the emotional impact. In this sense, emotional security can be understood as kind of under the umbrella of resilience. The notion of emotional security of a person is different from emotional safety or security provided by a supportive environment. A person who is susceptible to depression being triggered by minor setbacks is said to be less emotionally secure. A person whose general happiness is not very shaken, even by major things going wrong in their life, you could call them extremely emotionally secure. So famous theorist Abraham Maslow described an insecure person as a person who, quote, perceives the world as a threatening jungle and most human beings as dangerous and selfish, feels a rejected and isolated person, anxious and hostile, is generally pessimistic and unhappy, shows signs of tension and conflict, tends to turn inward, is troubled by guilt, has one or another disturbance of self-esteem, tends to be neurotic, and is generally selfish and egocentric. Maslow viewed in every insecure person a continual longing for security, no matter how physically secure they actually were. Another researcher, Allegre, in, in 2008 said, a person who is insecure lacks confidence in their own value and one or more of their capabilities, lacks trust in themselves or others, or has fears that a present positive state is temporary and will let them down and cause them loss or distress by going wrong in the future. This is a really common trait, and it only differs in in degrees between people. Like, we all have moments of emotional insecurity. Insecurity can also contribute to the development of shyness, paranoia, or social withdrawal. Or it can encourage, like, kind of opposite behaviors, like being arrogant, uh, being aggressive, or bullying people. The fact that the majority of of us as human beings are emotionally vulnerable and we have the capacity to be hurt implies that emotional insecurity is really just a difference in awareness of that insecurity. Insecurity can have a lot of effects in a person's life and there are lots of levels to it. It will almost always cause some degree of isolation as a typically insecure person will withdraw to some extent. The greater the insecurity, the higher the degree of isolation becomes. Insecurity is usually rooted, like most things are, in a person's childhood. It can grow in this kind of layered fashion and often will become this immobilizing force that limits a person in their life. And of course, it changes by degree. The degree to which you feel this insecurity will equal the degree of power it has in your life. As insecurity can be distressing and feel very threatening, It can often be accompanied by a controlling personality type or just avoidance as psychological defense mechanisms. All right, so I want to take a moment to talk about where emotional security comes from. And in a lot of ways, it's just a function of brain chemistry. Some people are naturally predisposed to feel less happy and to be more affected by environmental events in their life. Certain medications such as um, SSRIs or even stimulants are often prescribed to address these natural deficiencies. The side effects of these meds, unfortunately, in many cases can negate their positive effects. For example, certain antidepressants make it difficult or impossible to experience orgasm by making the brain incapable of cutting off the flow of certain hormones usually associated with positive emotions but necessary to suddenly block for short periods of time in order for orgasm to occur. It's also said that many of these medications blunt both the highs and the lows, sapping for some people a really inspiring energy from life. However, when you weigh the pros against the cons of such situations, 
it can be very different for each individual. In many cases, the dangers of naturally low emotional insecurity can be much worse than the side effects of the appropriate medication, especially such as when a person becomes suicidal. So even though, like, and this is kind of my my thought behind meds really quickly is that I don't think meds are for everybody. I think they are really important for some people, but it is a really important personal choice for each individual. Not every person who is depressed or who has low emotional security should be on medications, but for some people it can really help. So as far as the philosophies behind emotional security, it tends to change depending on outlook. So some ideologies would advocate that there are safer steps than medicine a person can take in order to increase your emotional security. These can range from self-help programs, substance abuse treatment programs, or psychotherapy, uh, physical exercise, spiritual or religious devotion. And while uh, emotionally insecure people may feel lethargic energy-wise, sometimes their best option is to increase their level of endorphins through exercise. Uh, and while some people may be afraid of rejection, this can lead to unhealthy loneliness, which the only way to overcome is to risk rejection by trying to make friends and relationships. Practices such as yoga or Buddhism advocate abstinence from mind-altering substances. Yoga is a physical, mental, and spiritual practice or discipline for achieving this clarity of mind and security of attitude through training and discipline, disciplining your body, while Buddhism is in essence a practice designed to address suffering rather than avoid it. Now, on the other side of things, philosophers of existentialism deal with issues relating to this emotional security quite often, and they focus on the individual spiritual condition in the world. Existentialism being a more emotionally and psychologically oriented philosophy than other rationalist schools. As a matter of fact, Soren Kierkegaard dealt with emotions like anxiety, dread, and despair, and he pointed to the role that they can play in actually bringing about life-changing transformation. So instead of avoiding that horrible feeling of anxiety and insecurity, sometimes if you address it head-on, it can really change your life in a really good way. All right, so to close this section out, I want to talk about a specific type of insecurity that I think Nixon, at least as he's portrayed here in the film, probably suffers from, and it's called imposter syndrome. And this term uh, began in 1978 by clinical psychologists uh, Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes, which refers to high-achieving individuals marked by an inability to internalize their own accomplishments and a persistent fear of being exposed as a fraud. Despite external evidence of their competence, those exhibiting the syndrome remain convinced that they are frauds and do not deserve the success that they have achieved. Uh, proof of this success is dismissed as luck, good timing, or deceiving others into thinking that, that they, more, they are more intelligent than they believe themselves to be. Some studies suggest that imposter syndrome is particularly common among high-achieving women. So it tends to be studied as a reaction to stimuli and events. It's not perceived as a particular mental disorder, but has been the topic of a lot of research. So it's basically a response experienced by many different people to situations that prompt these feelings. Though certain people are more prone to these imposter feelings and experience them more intensely than most, evidence does not support imposter syndrome to be like this distinct personality trait. And in these studies, they found, it, um, they found several behaviors of high-achieving women with imposter syndrome. First, diligence. They tend to uh, work hard to prevent people to discover that they're imposters. And this hard work leads to more praise and success, with, which perpetuates the feelings of being an imposter and the fears of being found out. Second, this feeling of being phony. They often attempt to give supervisors and professors the answers they believe they want, which leads to this increase in feeling like they're fake. 
Uh, third, the use of charm. They often use charm to gain approval and praise from supervisors and seek out these relationships in order to help them increase their abilities intellectually. However, when this supervisor will give them praise or recognition, they feel it's based on the charm and not on their ability. And finally, avoiding displays of confidence. So they avoid showing any confidence outwardly in their abilities. A person dealing with imposter feelings may believe that if they believe in their intelligence, that they'll be rejected by others. So they tend to convince themselves that they are not intelligent or do not deserve success to avoid this feeling. Now, while most studies have primarily focused on women, one recent study suggested that men may also be prone to imposter syndrome on similar levels. In terms of prevalence, uh, the research done in the early 80s estimated that two out of five successful people consider themselves frauds. That's huge, 40%. And other studies even have found that that 70% of all people feel like imposters at one time or another. People who have reportedly experienced this syndrome in the press include screenwriter Chuck Lorre, best-selling writer Neil Gaiman, uh, best-selling writer John Green, uh, business leader Sheryl Sandberg, and actress Emma Watson. So, of course, it's really common in high achievers. Another demographic group that often suffers from this is African Americans. Some of this, uh, some studies say that being the beneficiary of affirmative, of affirmative action can cause a person who belongs to this visible minority, it may cause them to doubt their own abilities and suspect that their skills are not what allowed them to be hired. It's also really commonly reported by graduate students, hello, uh, and scientists beginning tenure track positions. So this is something as I watch the movie, and Ben and I don't really talk about this much because it's so specific, but I do feel like we we mentioned at one point, like despite the fact that he's the president of the United States of America, probably the most powerful person in the world, he still has these feelings of insecurity. And a lot of that, I think, because he's so high achieving, can really be tied to imposter syndrome. All right. So that's it for the psychological section. When we come back, I'll bring Ben Zook back in and we will talk about Nixon. All right, so we're back to talk about the movie. We're back to talk about Oliver Stone's Nixon. So really, uh, this episode's all about you because I remember hearing uh, from our our mutual friend Mike from War Machine vs. Warhorse that Nixon was one of your favorite movies. Like it was like this transformative experience for you. And I knew an Oliver Stone movie was coming out and God knows the man can't make a short movie to save his life. So like time really isn't an issue because if you're going to watch an Oliver Stone movie, you're you're good for at least two and a half hours. So I thought like, let's invite Ben on and talk about Nixon. So what was what is kind of your history with Nixon and your experience with it? Uh, you know, much like Dog Day Afternoon, it's another one of those that I just saw on cable uh, nonstop as I was growing up. And I guess it's kind of weird to, you know, to say that I was like a teenager uh, who was watching Oliver Stone movies about, you know, 1960s presidents and everything. <laughs> but that's exactly, you know, I was. The things you do um, for a good time, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I, yeah, I, I love this film. I watch it probably once a year, at least. Uh, this year, we're we're up to, I, I guess I've watched it four times this year oh uh, because of your uh, <laughs> podcast. Uh, two of those times was with the audio commentaries on. So, the yeah, the the uh, thing that incited, the, the catalyst for this whole thing uh, was our mutual friend, uh, the stubborn podcaster from Kentucky, uh, <laughs> who said that Anthony Hopkins' performance in this movie is essentially an SNL skit. And, 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 and admittedly, he hadn't seen it in a while, but, but, you know, I, I, but, you know, even so I thought, you know, that's a travesty. That's, you know, this <laughs> performance is amazing. This uh, performance has way more going on than just the physical look 
of Richard Nixon, which admittedly Anthony Hopkins doesn't think he looks like Richard Nixon. Anthony Hopkins, uh, Hopkins doesn't think he sounds like Richard Nixon. Uh, but what Hopkins does is he inhabits the character from you know within, uh, and, right. and in a way that I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I, I if I've ever seen an actor pull off a performance like this hmm. in the same way. So for me, it was, I, I saw this movie in the theater. I remember it pretty vividly. I went, I went with my dad who is a, has a PhD in history. So this is, this is kind of his wheelhouse. And I remember also seeing JFK with him and loving JFK, like to probably an unfortunate amount. Like I went to the trouble of like reading the books it was based on, like I was really diving into that. So then, you know, went and saw Nixon kind of based on the strength of JFK. And I, it's been so long, at least until recently that I'd watched it, that, you know, you kind of brought up how much you loved it. And I was like, huh, I don't remember having that reaction. Like, I don't remember disliking it either. I mean, I remember feeling like I had like this very middle of the road reaction to it, but I hadn't watched it since it was in the theater. So it's been a good long time. And I think nothing will make you feel as foolish as rewatching a movie, uh, like much later in your life because I think because tastes change and mm -hmm. you see more mm -hmm. movies and you notice different things. So there are sometimes when I watch movies that I loved when I was like 18 and watch it now and I'm like, God, I was I was an idiot. What was I thinking? But then vice versa, like movies that I despised and then I end up loving now. So I think it there's always some utility to revisiting things, even if you had a strong reaction to it. Um, it's, it's a tough nut to crack by, you know, by, you know, um, by any measure, uh, you know, there's a lot of nuance here that that Stone yeah. is uh, portraying. I, I think people really uh, he could have taken the easy way out and just made an I hate Richard M. Nixon uh, movie that would have placated to, you know, all the hatred that was out there for him it would have been right. like sort of a, a euphoric release for, for those people. And that's not what he does. He, he celebrates Richard Nixon's strengths, you know, criticizes him harshly for his weaknesses. Uh, and, and, you know, and he drew criticism from both sides. Uh, because yeah. of it. So, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's jump into Oliver Stone's direction because I think you bring up probably the most important point is I remember going to see this movie uh, as a dyed-in-the-wool liberal kind of expecting like, okay, mm -hmm. let's pile on. Like that's all this is going to be. <laughs> like it's Oliver Stone doing a movie about like not even probably I would say the most reviled president in American history especially from that side of the aisle. So I was like, oh man, this this might almost be painful to watch. And I was really impressed with how even-handed Oliver Stone was. And that's not a word I would use to describe his work kind of about regardless of the subject matter. So I was very shocked by that, that he was able to do, able to kind of keep things even. And you can see that, you know, he feels pressured to open the movie with this disclaimer that <laughs> says, oh, some of these scenes are fictionalized. Well, that's know, JFK talking. Blah, blah. You know, he took so um, much crap from JFK uh, about JFK for like things that were or may or may not be true. So it's like, okay, let's just put this up in the very beginning. So no one questions me. And if I could, if I could speak for a minute on that, um, you know, no filmmaker that I know of has published an annotated screenplay um, detailing where he where mm. his screen where his screenplay was fact versus where it was fiction. I've never heard of anyone doing that. Oliver Stone did that after JFK, uh, and people That's tend so much to, work. They tend to paint the whole JFK thing with this with this broad brush and saying, "Oh, well, it's a nice movie, but it's all fiction." And it's like, "Well, no, that's not really true." There's like about 
you know, five or 10 things that he's moved around uh, in terms of, you know, location and timing, and maybe he's stretched it a little bit, and maybe he's embracing Jim Garrison's theories a little right. bit too much, but they are Jim Garrison series, and it is a movie about Jim Garrison, right. um, and so I, I don't know, I think, I, think he gets, I think he gets too much flack for that. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. I think also, you know, we'll get back to Nixon in a second, but taking on something like JFK, which is like the the kind of one of the biggest events in American history. It's that if you were born before that, that's everyone's question was, where were you when JFK was shot? And then the idea of like this being an inside job or, you know, whether it's involves, you know, the Cuban missile crisis. I mean, there's, there's a lot of theories there and it's a really, it's a really easy thing to poke holes in because there's so much, there's so many unanswered questions. Um, so in some ways, like, it's kind of like, that's, that's what you're going to get. Even if you made a movie about JFK now, no matter what you say about it, you're going to get people kind of coming mm-hmm. after you. Uh, but I did find it interesting that he did put that disclaimer at the beginning uh, of this movie. But I think one of the other really interesting choices, and I think it really sets the mood really well, is like in one of the opening scenes, you just see a picture, you see an image of the White House, and there's this really ominous music mm-hmm. playing over the top, which is this weird, it's this weird thing. Cause you almost never see that in television or film in any media. When you show the white house, there's usually this like orchestral kind of uplifting music. And to have this kind of almost horror score, uh, over the white house, I think really sets up the fact that some bad things are going to happen here. Well, I'm sure we're going to, I love that shot. I love the shot you're referring to where they, where the camera tracks through the gate of the, you know, the white house. I'm sure we're going to bring it up a lot while we're talking about uh, Nixon, but there's a very obvious, I think, Citizen Kane influence here. Mm. And so he's portraying the White House as as Xanadu, as, you know, the gigantic uh, mansion, the, the, you know, that the, the tragic hero uh, of that film built for himself. And that and in very much in, in the same way, that's what the White House is to, you know, to Richard Nixon. Uh, it's just that gigantic thing that he, he thought would solve everything in his life, but but doesn't. And the other the other obvious connection to Citizen Kane is the that the central mystery is, you know, is the 18 and a half minute uh, gap on his tapes. And uh, Roger Ebert uh, very, very rightly called attention to how, how that is is like Rosebud in, in Citizen Kane. It's this right. mystery that you think solves everything, but but it doesn't really. Yeah, absolutely. I also think we talked about Oliver Stone kind of making uh, making Nixon a character you care about. And I feel like in a lot of ways he made his job even more difficult than it was to begin with because the introduction to that character, he's just like drunk and cursing like a sailor. And it immediately like kind of shocks the audience like, oh, is it? and yet this movie is about Nixon. This is our – not our hero, but he's definitely our central character. And to introduce him like that, it's just kind of like galling in that moment that you don't usually get from a major studio motion picture. It's very Shakespearean, very Greek. Like the first time we yeah. see him, Alexander Haig is turning on the light and it's this very bright light and his face is all wrinkled and his hair is messed up and he's he's on pills and he's drinking. And, and they, he Stone really uh, smartly sets up this idea of contradictions in Nixon's character with Alexander Haig noticing the uh, blazing furnace next to the air conditioner that's turned on to full blast. <laughs> um, so, you know, yeah. 
absolutely. I also think some really, there's some really, I mean, we'll get into, I'm sure, the editing, and I'll just let you talk when we get there, because that's that's also your profession when we get to the production value. But I really like the sequences where Oliver Stone kind of in like puts Anthony Hopkins in in these kind of old videos, like whether you're talking about mm-hmm. the convention or or the presidential debates, and that's something that could easily come off as silly and like you know look you know for lack mm-hmm. of a better term just look photoshopped in. But I there's not really a moment in the film where I look at those moments and I'm like, oh well, that looks fake, and that's saying something because you know what Anthony Hopkins looks like. And he doesn't look exactly like Nixon. And and I've seen those old tapes. So it was really impressive that he was able to kind of slide him in there and make it look natural. So, yeah. So another Citizen Kane influence we have here is there's a uh, March of Time newsreel sequence about 45 minutes into the movie Mm -hmm. uh, that Mm -hmm. cover. It it brings you up to speed with Nixon's political career up until the point where where he loses the California uh, governor uh, election. Um, That's an incredible sequence. And so you're saying there, there's no shot where, where it's, you know, obvious, obvious to you. There's one shot for me. Hmm. And even as a lover of this film, I have to admit there, there's a shot of Nixon holding up Eisenhower's hand. Oh, uh, yeah. As, yeah, that's true. The nom- I think they're winning the nomination <laughs> or winning the election. And it's very obvious digital fl- face replacement. Uh, but other than that, I think everything works fine. It's interesting. Uh, people always say, you know, going back to the stubborn uh, podcaster from Kentucky's opinion, um, people always say that Anthony Hopkins doesn't look like Richard Nixon. Uh, there's a there's a still photo of the real Richard Nixon in the newsreel sequence. And I don't think people notice it. It's the one where he's across from the Jefferson Monument mm-hmm. uh, with Pat, and he's on a bike. And that's the actual Richard Nixon. And it took me several viewings to to realize that that wasn't Anthony Hopkins. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this uh, with the acting, but I think some of that kind of backlash of, like, he doesn't look like him, he doesn't sound like him, is, is kind of a catch-22 situation. Because... If you if you play Nixon, like everybody knows what Nixon sounds like and looks like, mm-hmm. like he is kind of he's almost a caricature of himself, you know, like if you you see it in movies and in graphic novels, like it he shows up and you immediately knows who know who he is just by looking at him. But if you go that route, if you put on this gigantic fake nose, if you put on this ridiculous voice, then people are going to say, oh, you're just, you know, like Mike was talking about, oh, you're just an SNL character. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. if you don't do it, then it's like, oh, well, that doesn't sound like him. So you're you're kind of between a rock and a hard place with someone who is that recognizable. And at the same time, Richard Nixon was an extremely guarded figure. The the perception that he projected to other people based on, you know, his insecurity to tie to your theme for a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, he uh, presented a different uh, viewpoint to the world of who he was than who he really was. And would it really be interesting to watch a movie with Nixon just as he was on you know on television shows on the way that he projected himself to the world it wouldn't be you you know you have to bring people in to the richard nixon that they haven't seen and i think it's what hopkins does and i think it's what joan allen does too uh in in regards to her portrayal of of pat nixon um so uh and going back to the newsreel sequence um you know it's just interesting he's able to compress so much information into into this small bit of time and again tying back to the making uh comparing uh Richard Nixon to Charles Foster Kane uh as sort of a tragic hero and also interesting that that uh newsreel sequence appears 45 minutes into the movie there's a lot of interesting uh stuff that Stone does 
structure wise that I think if other filmmakers were try were to try to do, they would maybe make it maybe too exact. Uh, everything would like sure. everything would go back to the tapes too easily or whatever. Uh, if you if you remember Milk, do you remember Milk with yeah. Tom Penn yeah. and they had the tape recorder? And it was kind of a stupid framing device that they didn't need anyways. Uh, here it's all seamless, uh, and I don't know if a lot of that ended up happening in the editing room or whatever, but it's so seamless in terms of how this movie starts uh, with the with the um, lead up to the Watergate break in. Goes to to Nixon on the you know like uh, on his last days. Goes back to Nixon uh, at the Kennedy debates. You know then then you have you know, you've got like some flashbacks of and flashbacks and and you know you lose track at a certain point. But you never are you're you're always there with the characters. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the last thing I wanted to bring up as far as direction is there's there's a scene in the movie where Pat Nixon is essentially threatening divorce, and I love um, the lighting in that particular mm-hmm. sequence because it's. You know, we kind of talked about you have a hard task ahead of you to make Nixon a character you care about. Um, And I think one of the things that really helps you care is his relationship with Pat. Like that's that's those are the moments where he's most human. And to like bathe that scene in blue light. So you like really feel that kind of oppressive sadness in that Mm -hmm. moment and and a little bit of that panic. I just I love the way that's scripted and the the way that's lit, because you really for the first time, I think, are, are in Nixon's corner. He would have been a better person if he had quit and uh, just lived his life uh, with yeah. with Pat. Um, uh, so you brought up the lighting. Uh, Robert Richardson is a DP, uh, great DP. Yeah, uh, I, I wish uh, he was working with Stone uh, still. I don't. I don't think he's doing Snowden. I think it's someone else. Um, uh, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, so that scene, yeah, it's a very important scene because he's taking a bit of a leap in the storytelling to suggest that Nixon. Uh, gave that famous speech after the California election where, where he said, you know, you won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. Right. And, um, you know, and so to suggest that he did that for Pat is maybe a bit of a leap. Uh, but I but I think it's I think it very well could be true. Uh, it makes sense. I think this uh, dynamic that Stone is suggesting that they may have had, uh, obviously, you know, something drove him. These are the, the things that were important to him, obviously, had to be his family. Um, he, the, the other relationship, uh, you know, the three women, the three important women in his life, uh, we see, we see his mother, you know, and we see Pat and we see Trisha, his daughter, and they all have, they all have sort of the, their, their scenes that are very similar in the movie, uh, in regards to each other. We, we see his mother dress him down and, and get him to admit to a lie. Uh, and then later on in the movie, we see Trisha, uh, defend him as he is lying to her, um, right. and and so it's very interesting how those scenes kind of relate to each other and how and how Pat is sort of the 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 bridge of the gap because he lies to her but she can see through the lies. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So speaking of that, let's jump into the acting. So like like most Oliver Stone movies, especially this time period, this is I mean everybody's in this movie. I mean we mentioned Anthony Hopkins and Joan Allen. Uh, also, Powers Booth is Alexander Haig. Ed Harris is E. Howard Hunt. You have Bob Hoskins playing J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, David Hyde Pierce, Paul Sorbino, uh, J.T. Walsh, who I think was one of those really underappreciated character actors. So I was very happy to see him here. And James Woods as H.R. Haldeman. So uh, where do you want to start as far as the acting? I mean, I think I think uh, Hopkins, I, I'm going to agree with you and disagree with Mike. I I. When I first saw it, I remember thinking it was a little caricature-ish, but as I watch it now, like, I was actually really impressed that he didn't go kind of all the way into that kind of comedic realm. Like, he mm-hmm. didn't 
he did the voice a little bit, but not so much that you you were laughing during it. He still felt like a real tragic human being. He owns all those emotions. Uh, you know, I mean, the I don't want to. I guess I don't know. I don't know if this is giving it away or anything. The the, the prayer scene. Um, mm. You know, you, you you can't fake something like that. Uh, right. You know, Tony, Anthony Hopkins is really presenting uh real emotions there that that uh, that if someone just happened to look like Richard Nixon like so so the original Nixon was going to be Warren Beatty I believe hmm. and he dropped out cuz he didn't like the script um and so I just wonder you know you have, have you seen the previews for the new Warren Beatty uh Howard Hughes movie yes yes and you know you can you can kind of see like a little bit of you get a little bit of a taste of maybe what a Warren Beatty Nixon would have been like right. in that even though he represents in your mind more easily the the idea of Howard Hughes, um, you know, it might, there's something I mean, I, I, again, I'm not one to judge a movie by previews, uh, but but, you, you know, you, you kind of want to guess, is there something missing there? Uh, the, right. the, the thing that Tony Hopkins has, has provided here. Uh, and so. Yeah, I think I think it's one of the most amazing performances of the '90s. Maybe you know, maybe even greater than that. Uh, you know, I don't I don't even know where to begin in terms of of the praise of this performance. I think it's I, I think it's an excellent example of how a uh, pers- uh, how an actor can drift into a, into a role even though they don't have the physical uh, correctness and everything, and they don't have the voice and all that. So right. So speaking of the voice, what did you think of Paul Servino's performance? Because I think he's the one who quote unquote does the voice. I mean, Henry Kissinger is, I mean, if you know, if you've seen any video clips with him, his voice is almost more recognizable than Nixon. So what did you think of that presentation? I think he's great. I mean, I think it's another flip, you know, another, you know, flip of the same coin here in that Sorvino is trying to, uh, you know, technically get the performance right and everything. And he does own the, own the emotions as well. Cause I mean, Kissinger was not, is not an emotional guy or anything really. And, and we do get to see a little bit of that in the movie when he's really pushed, uh, with Nixon. Um, which it's another one of those really interesting things. Uh, you have to ask yourself, well, why does Nixon keep Kissinger around so long? Um, you know, he, he, Kissinger would seem to represent everything that Nixon hates. He, he's representative of the establishment of, uh, of Harvard and of uh, uh, the elite. Um, and, and yet, you know, he's the one person that he I mean, everyone else goes. Everyone else is gone by the end of this movie, uh, basically, except except for Kissinger yeah. um, in terms of his, his administration. And I think Sorvino's performance really, really helps in that regard. Uh, you can you you sense this sort of aspect of of almost brotherhood, and, and uh, Nixon loses two brothers earlier in the movie, and so maybe that's it. Maybe he can't get rid of Kissinger because Kissinger is like a brother to him. Yeah. So you bring up the the two brothers and kind of the flashback sequences and the family. So here's the one performance that bothers me, and I don't think it's her fault. I like Mary Steenburgen a lot. Um, but and I'm sure there are people, uh, especially during that time period, that actually did speak like that. Uh, but it's so foreign to my ears that I, I I get to this point where I'm almost chuckling at kind of how ridiculous it sounds. And I know that's not the reaction probably that Oliver Stone wants from those sequences. So it's I remember watching The Witch earlier this year and everyone was freaking out about you know, how on point it was as far as the language. But if the modern audience isn't understanding the language then that's not terribly helpful. And I had a little bit of that reaction to her performance. 
So I am gonna I'm gonna di- I'm gonna respectfully disagree with you uh, on this one. I do I love Mary Steen Virgin in this movie. Uh, I think if she had a little bit more you know time and everything, um, she probably would have been looking at an Oscar nomination. Hmm. Um, so an interesting anecdote is that uh, Nixon's mother didn't really have that thick of a of a of the of the uh, the the Quaker cadence and everything. Um, it was more his grandmother. But Stone mm-hmm. wanted to have a sense of the kind of rigid life that uh, Nixon led uh, as as a child, and so I think it's really important that she speaks in that you know with that Quaker you know dialect and everything, um, because it, it keeps you know constantly reminding you of religion and and of God watching you, sure. um, and that's what the mother you know is reminding re- reminding to him when when she calls him out on the lie about the corn husk uh, cigarette. Uh, and everything, uh, and I, I, really, I mean, I, I love the scene where little Nixon tries to go to his mother after the death of one of his brothers, and Mary Steenburgen just goes, "No, no," and, and it's just very, very quick and everything. You can you can hear a little dog whimpering in the, in like the background on the soundtrack, which is really interesting because he had said earlier. Uh, to think of me as, as your faithful dog, um, and so oh, I, don't, right. I don't know. I think I think Steam Virgin really. Uh, I've I've never disliked Mary Steam Virgin no, in a movie no. or in anything really. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> wouldn't trust anybody who disliked her. She's completely <laughs> likable. And the last person I want to talk about briefly is Joan Allen. I think she really holds this movie together. I think I think if you have a lesser actress in this role as Pat Nixon the movie gets overwhelmed by Anthony Hopkins and his performance. Like she is, is the kind of heart uh, not only of the movie, but, but for their relationship, she's what kind of keeps him moving forward and, and keeps him like trying, even though she's the one at near the beginning of the film who kind of tells him you need to stop. Mm -hmm. But she, despite that, even when he goes kind of against her wishes, she's always with him. She's never, she's never the antagonist for him. And I think it'd be easy to paint a picture of an unhappy relationship, but you don't get that. You do get two people who really care about one another. I think her performance is phenomenal here. Yeah, I think I think that's her best moment in the movie. Definitely when she when Nixon reveals to her, uh, or she finds out rather that Nixon is running for president again in 1968, even though he had uh, you know told her that he was done. And, and in that span of that pretty short scene, uh, she has to go from. You know, I'm I'm moving on. I'm leaving to uh, to to. We are going to win this time. I can feel it, and yeah. she really owns that. Uh, you, you know, that last bit of that of that of that of that scene, uh, really convincing you that she sees in Nixon a a great leader, someone who can change the world, who can make the world a better place. Uh, I don't think either of them were uh, as I don't think either of them were as ego driven. As, as maybe the press made Nixon out to be, right. um, I think I think he had genuine aspirations for for making uh, the U.S. a better country and making the world a safer place. And I think Pat bought into that. And Joan Allen certainly, in a very short scene, in a, in a, a you know in a very long movie, uh, it's <laughs> one of the toughest transitions. Is, 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 you know, is in that scene, and, and it, it you know the movie would suffer. Uh, if if uh, if Joan Allen couldn't pull that off, so. yeah, I mean it's a real credit to her that that scene doesn't feel forced and doesn't feel mm-hmm. like it doesn't make sense. Um, so let's jump into the writing. So something you mentioned uh, is is something that 
bothered me a little bit, but if this were a lesser film, like I think this is a very good to a great film, and if it was a lesser film, this would bug me so much that I would probably despise it. The fact that there are points in time where you're not really sure where you are. Like it starts at Watergate, it jumps forward, it jumps back, it jumps way back, and then it jumps way forward, and it can get a little overwhelming as a viewer. You're like, wait, is he president right now? What What's happening right now? And it takes you uh, a minute to catch up, and Stone doesn't doesn't really bother to inform the audience where you are. He just kind of expects you to catch up. I, I think it's part of it goes back to the structure in that uh, he sets it up that Nixon is listening to the tapes and, and and very smartly, he doesn't like go back to that a whole lot. The whole movie from True. that point on, though, becomes this dizzying effect uh, of Nixon just sort of like going back and forth between all these different failures and different successes of his life uh, and, and reflecting back on that before he leaves uh, his office. Um, and, and the more I watch it, the more the structure really makes, starts to make sense. Um, I, you know, don't need to ask myself where I am. Uh, and even, you know, it's interesting. You watch the movie, it begins, well, you know, we haven't even mentioned that, that, that really great uh, salesman video at the very beginning. Oh with, yeah. Uh, the guy from platoon, I forget his name right now. He's a good actor. Uh, but, but this little like, like industrial short that the Watergate, uh, oh, burglars are you're talking watching. about John C. McGinley. Yeah. John, yeah. great actor. Yeah. Um, and, and it's so funny because, because again, again, you know, Nixon was called, you know, a great salesman. He was, he was, you know, prescribed as like, like, like the, the salesman president that could, you know, sell anyone or anything. <laughs> um, and, and so it's funny that we have that there. And then it goes from there to the Watergate break-in to um, then 1972. You, I don't even look at the title cards and everything. And I think it's smart that they didn't put them in the center of the frame. They put them like you know, farther down. So you could really just get lost in the movie. And even if you didn't know exactly where you were because of the emotional color of the scene, because of what's happening, you can, you can feel it out. And you know, you know, when Nixon is on a descent, you know, when Nixon is on, is on an ascent uh, in his career. And I think that's what ma- what makes the structure work, even on, a, on like, a, like a first viewing or whatever. Yeah, I think in terms of writing, there's only like two things that I, I wasn't a big fan of. And there's the the whole scene in Dallas when he's like meeting with the guys about Kennedy, like that just seemed – and I don't know, of course, how true any of this is and what it's based on. But it did seem just a little bit too on the nose. Like we're going to have this discussion about something might happen to Kennedy and then the next day – something happens to Kennedy and I was a little kind of kind of irked by that and it it lacks subtlety and it lacks like kind of a soft touch and then there's the bloody steak scene which I've always disliked like there's something about it that bothers me it just feels again too on the nose but those are really two minor uh minor moments in the film that bother me but the rest of the script I think is you know close close to perfection there, there's certainly a lot of a lot of flowery uh, dialogue and a lot of really interesting lines. That, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's funny. Uh, there are portions of this movie that are almost verbatim from the Nixon tapes. And then there are long portions like the, the part the part you're talking about is obviously composited, fictionalized uh, right. with the with the Dallas businessman, Flurry Hagman. But I think it's important that scenes like that were included because it does. Because I, I mean, I'm very certain that there were money men like that in Nixon's life. I think there are money men in every politician's lives that are pushing them to, you know, towards things and everything. And yeah, maybe it's a leap 
to have the odd uh, foreign-looking gentleman asking about uh, saying, what if Kennedy doesn't run? Yeah. uh... Um, I I like it. I like it. And and I'm going to defend the bloody steak because I think it's part of of a bigger... Um, and yeah, yeah, it's on the nose. It, it's very obvious that this isn't a subtle film um, in, in, many, in many regards. But even in a not subtle film, to me, that's the moment that stands out. Uh, that's the sledgehammer moment. I think it goes back to elements of Greek tragedy. Um, and so <laughs> so if you look at the bloody stake and then if you look at there's a later scene with John Dean, uh, David Hyde Pierce, where they're in the Oval Office and he goes to open up the door and let him out and the doorknob comes off. Um, mm-hmm. And then you look at, there's also a scene on Air Force One where they're, where they're I think, I believe it's a scene after they've uh, gotten Vietnam to uh, come to, to come to peace, peaceful terms and everything and end the war. Uh, they, they're like, they, there's some really funny line like about, well, it looks like it's going to be smooth sailing or something. <laughs> here. And they hit, they hit like a bump uh, on Air Force One. And of course, you know, like, like, Watergate is looming and all that. Right. Um, it, you know, it's part, it, it's a little uh, crazy for, for Stone to go in that direction and make this a piece of Greek tragedy and all that. Uh, but, but I like it. Uh, I, I enjoy those little quirks about the movie. So, uh, but I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. But I think, I mean, I think it's, it's definitely obvious that he is uh, taking a lot from kind of Greek tra- tragedy, Shakespearean tragedy. And I think that is the only way to make Nixon a character that we care about. Like if you look at things like if you look at things like Oedipus, right? Not a character that you would be drawn to if if there wasn't this fatal flaw, right? Um and I think Nixon in this movie anyway, I don't know about him as a human being, but in this movie, he's the same way. Like if you don't paint him with this kind of Greek tragedy brush, I don't think this movie works. I think the audience is turned off by they already come in a little bit turned off by the fact yeah. that it's Nixon. Like no matter what side of the aisle you're on, Nixon is not – that's not the hill you're going to die on. You know, like he's the guy who was booted out of office, who broke the law, and we know he broke the law. So you know, it becomes kind of problematic to make him your protagonist. So I think from a script level, it's kind of just this insane decision but a really, really smart one to make this – you know, kind of a tragedy. Well, so in regards to the central flaw that you were bringing up, and so I think that this kind of ties back in into your theme, um, you know, of insecurity. And so even in 1960, so the so the a lot of Nixon's flaws came about when he was put under uh, heavy scrutiny by the press. And right. so in the 1960 election, there were these very very famous photos of him uh, on a beach in San Clemente and he uh, was still wearing a suit while, while even while at the <laughs> beach. Um, right. And, and it was in direct contrast to all these photos we, we get of Jack Kennedy, you know, sailing and, and playing on the beach and blah, blah, blah. And um, the idea of personal image and public perception became such a huge um, deal with, with, you know, with the advent of television and everything and the popularity of it um, in the late fifties and, and, and throughout the sixties that he had to really adjust uh, who he was. It wasn't good enough just to be a, a, just to be, you know, a hardworking politician, just, just to be right. the kind of politician who gets whatever his agenda is done. Um, and he, he wasn't a handsome man. He was he probably wasn't, <laughs> even though he'd been athletic in the earlier part of his life, you know, he probably didn't look great shirtless or whatever the way. Right. Jack did. <laughs> so it's like, he, he's put into like a very weird, uh, you know, place and he, and he wants it so badly 
uh, and, and it all comes ahead with that that debate, you know, of Kennedy. Uh, and I know we're talking a lot about Nixon the man too, uh, but I do think, you know, obviously, you know, Stone is aware of these things and all that. Um, and and so, you know, uh, he was a man who was uncomfortable in his own skin. Right. Is what has always been said about Richard Nixon. Yeah, and I think that definitely comes across in the film and not in a not in a like uh it's in a relatively subtle way. Like it's not this there's not these moments where he's like looking at the camera and or looking in a mirror and like mm-hmm. wishing that he looked like someone else or wishing that he was someone else, but you do that does absolutely come across. We get a little bit of that with uh um uh E. G. Marshall's character, uh Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Um, when they're on the boat, uh, right after the bloody steak scene, coincidentally, uh, I must where, have been where... too busy rolling my eyes to to oh, notice this moment. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good scene. Um, and, and Nixon, uh, sa- Nixon says, you know, maybe it's when you're a kid, the the you know the insults to get and everything because you're ugly or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's such an interesting thing for like an older politician to say to another another older politician, right. another older male politician. Um, I don't know, and a successful if, one too, like wildly yeah, successful. I, he's president of the United States, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> like it's it goes to show that success does not cure that insecurity. I mean, it's no matter how far you go, kind of internally, if you're feeling that. That's not going to go away. Uh, but in terms of production value, I wanted to talk to you specifically about this because I think editing-wise, this is one of the most exciting movies I've ever seen. Like it does things that that I wasn't prepared for, that I that I would think on paper would not work. And and the things that that really come to mind are um, there's a scene at the uh, at the convention where mm-hmm. you have him speaking and it's in black and white. And then instead of the crowd, they show like – I think they show protesters outside in color like kind of at the same time. So it's kind of this mismatched uh, emotions where you have the, the the cheering masses inside and then outside you have people really concerned about what's going on with the world. And I just thought it was such an interesting visual look. It's amazing. The influence that Stone has had on film, on TV – on how things are organized in the story, uh, you know, today, uh, I don't think can be can be under. I don't think can be overstated at this point. And, and you know, he started that with JFK, which is unlike any other movie um, up until that point. And uh, and this movie, I, I had the same reaction to it. Uh, uh, you know, when I was was the first three or four times I had watched it, that the editing was was just incredible. Um, and it's funny, I watch it now. I think it's tame by today's <laughs> standards in terms of the amount of information and everything. They, they, they almost, they're almost, they've almost taken it too far now. Uh, and I look at this. So, so um, the editor here, two editors, uh, Hank Corwin and Brian Burdan. I'm not really familiar with Brian Burdan, but Hank Corwin. Uh, I feel like I know enough. that name. I feel yes, like he's been nominated. Uh, yes. Uh, so he, he was the editor on The Big Short, which was a movie oh. that I didn't like very much. Right. Um, oh, I thought I thought you were being sarcastic. I thought you were you were like nudging me. Um, no. So go ahead. <laughs> so Hank Corwin is a very good editor, and apparently. So because of the big short, because it was doing the Oscar run and everything, there were like these really interesting interviews of Hank Corwin and I read a lot, read a lot of them. And he did mention Nixon uh, and the post experience of it uh, a few times. And apparently it was just like really insane. And, and, and like the scenes were getting passed from editor to editor. And it was just <laughs> like, like this is a this is a three, three and a half hour movie. There, there's another hour 
of deleted scenes on the on the DVD. Um, so that's like you know another four. That's like four and a half hours there. Uh, I, it I it did not have a long gestation period. Uh, you know of any kind. So it was it was a very quickly cut uh, film. And you know Hank Corwin didn't didn't talk about it with 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 great fondness, uh, and I can imagine that because <laughs> the uh, like the other you're talking about the mix of formats and everything. You know we're living in the digital age, and now you can shoot things one way, and you, you can pay for some really great color correction, and they can make it look like 16 millimeter film. Yeah, not in the mid 90s. <laughs> uh, yeah, in the mid 90s. So apparently, and going back to Robert Richardson, the DP here, great DP. Um, you know what they did is they would film a scene 35 millimeter in color and then right after they were done okay now let's do 35 millimeter in black and white and okay now let's do 16 millimeter uh, color let's do 16 millimeter black and white and now let's do 8 millimeter but and they would just like do all the they would mix all and and they're mixing frame rates and they're and he does some of this stuff too in in alexander um you know which you know probably didn't go over well uh with most people um, <laughs> no a lot about that movie didn't go over well with most people <laughs> the other thing i wanted to mention is there are this is going to sound negative, but it's actually a positive. There are there are scenes in the White House that feel more stagey than they do more realistic, but I think that that fits with this idea of him as like this tragic hero. Like I think all those scenes, I love all those scenes, but there's never there's never moments where the rooms in the White House feel connected to one another. But I think it's set up like that purposefully. I think it's supposed to be something that's more like a stage play than like a film in those sequences. That's an interesting point. There aren't a lot of walk and talks. And um, this movie came out the same year as The American President. Um, and so that idea of, you know, political walk, walk and talks, um, you know, is just kind of starting from Aaron Sorkin. Uh, and, and there, you know, we got we get like him and Jay Edgar. Uh, but that's about it. You're right. There aren't scenes like that in the White House. And I think today uh, a movie made about politics that's set in the White House, they, they would almost have to include walk and talks. Uh, because I think people people would be so upset they would they would ride in the streets. I think right. Yeah, I mean it's a post talks. it's a post West Wing world <laughs> at this point, so you kind of have to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about our favorite scenes. So um, the first one that comes to mind for me is there's a scene uh, between Nixon uh, and and someone who works in the White House, and he's asking him about whether he cried when JFK died, and it's a really moving scene because you don't. You don't see honesty like this about about grief, about death. Like Nixon can't fathom the idea that that people would cry over JFK's death. And then you have this other character kind of trying to protect its feelings a little bit in the beginning of the sequence and then finally admits like yes, I did cry when he died. And I just I love this like very quiet moment in a in a movie that's like surrounded by all these actors and it's just these two men having a very frank conversation about the death of a president and also the death of someone who who is kind of the focus of Nixon's insecurity. You know, it's a very interesting scene. Um, uh, so it, it's interesting because Manolo, uh, you know, his, his uh, assistant or whatever, uh, is being honest with, with Nixon. And it would have been very easy for him to just lie. Right. Uh, and And – if you look at the way Nixon is portrayed in the movie The Butler uh, by, by John Cusack and how he's just kind of, you know, just doesn't see uh, the people he, you know, the servants and, and, and the people, work, the staff of the White House as human beings, um, you, you know, uh, this is a very different kind of contrast here is that in that he's just portrayed as a human being. Um, and, yeah, it's a great scene. I have to ask, 
Uh, which version? Now, did you watch the director's cut or did you watch the uh, theatrical cut? Um, I believe the director's cut. So, yeah, so the director's cut is three and a half hours long. Yeah. Uh, it's the one that has a long 10-minute Sam Watterson sequence. Yes, yes. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, he's played around with the structure of that scene uh, with Manolo um, in the director's cut. And originally it was, it was in a completely different uh, place. And, and so it's interesting that that scene occurs directly after he's been dressed down by uh, Richard Helms, the director of the CIA, uh, and so it's meant to be him kind of emerging from a place of failure and trying to understand why that is, why it is that he can't accomplish the same things as, as Kennedy. And it's sort of uh, that, you know, that idea of Kennedy and Nixon is, is still plaguing him to the, right. even both brothers are dead. He's president like we you know, <laughs> and Ted Kennedy's, you know, got Chappaquiddick and, and you know, you would think, uh, you know, he would be able to stand tall at this point and get past it, but he can't. Right. Uh, and it leads directly into the, one of my favorite scenes, the uh, scene at the Lincoln Memorial, which uh, did happen. That's he, so crazy he... to me that that <laughs> happened. Like I, I looked, I looked that up and I was like, this has to be an Oliver Stone creation. Like, nope, this totally random thing did actually happen. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know if the, if the lines of what he's saying are, are right. correct or anything, but it's very interesting the, what, what Stone has, has crafted, um, you know, this idea, uh, of, of, uh, the system that 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 Nixon can't really even get a handle on that he isn't that he's president but he can't he but he's serving the system and, and not the other way around uh, and and the woman realizing that uh, it's a very interesting idea uh, we we don't like to think of our presidents as being subservient to anything else but I you know I think think you know what's presented in this Lincoln Memorial sequence is probably closer to the truth than what we'd like to admit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a really interesting scene because we we like to think of our political leaders as individuals as standing up for what they believe and quote unquote doing the right thing, but they are in service to many forces. And not the least of those is the office itself and the kind of crushing pressure that that must put you under. And I think that is more than anything, I think what helps us view in this film, Nixon in a positive light is there are moments where you're kind of like, well, he couldn't have done anything else. Like this was, Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. was the office. This was the job. Like you may hate him for what he did, but you know, many other people would have done the exact same thing. Like he had to. And it's like, why do you think Lyndon Baines Johnson left the White House? I mean, he could have easily won a a second term. Um, (laughs) No, thank you. (laughs) He knew he couldn't win the war. He knew it would it would it would plague the the, you know the presidency. Would he would have a horrible legacy because of it? And that and 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 he was also had had you know he was much older, had failing health. Uh, I'm sure those were factors as well. Sure. Um, and and, you know, I'm sure the Vietnam War affected his health too. Uh, so you know, there there's a very is a very interesting time. Uh, in American politics, I would say because of this, because of the amount of scope that this movie covers, I would put it as the best political movie of all time. That's that's just my opinion. Wow. Uh, but but the the you you can study individual scenes here uh, and and uh, and find topics of uh, political discussion. You know that you don't really see in any other movie, like triangular diplomacy, uh, which is something that you know that Kissinger, you know, was was a real pioneer of, and everything. That's true. Uh, and so it's it, like other 
filmmakers, I think, would skip over this stuff. They wouldn't mention it. They think it's too dry. Uh, people aren't interested. And I guess according to the box office receipts, you know, <laughs> this movie, they weren't. Uh, but, but I really respect Stone for going in that direction. Uh, it's, it's interesting because none of, none of the Nixon movies really have made any money. Um, the closest one that you could call successful would be Frost Nixon. Right. And what? It got five Oscar nominations and made like... $15 million at the box office <laughs> right. or whatever. Well, like that's not really success. Uh, there's just not an interest in, in, in uh, revisiting this part of American history. And yet Richard Nixon would seem to embody the idea that a guy could go from the son of a grocer uh, to, you know, to, to the presidency right. is the embodiment of the American dream. Yeah. Um, and yet the truth of it is that the truth of it is that, you know, that you know your your uh, failures uh, can haunt you. Your your personal flaws can haunt you and can lead to tragedy and everything. And we don't want to see that part of it. Yeah, I just uh, wonder so. if some of it is because like as like as, as individuals we can see nuance, but as giant groups of people, I think giant groups of people like like their heroes and their villains black and white. You know, and this and in order to make an interesting movie about Nixon, you can't just make him a villain because mm. we already have that in our heads. So who cares? But then you're you're up against this challenge of we already have this negative opinion of this person. And now you have to fight this uphill battle, you know, and a lot of people won't even walk into the theater to see it, mm -hmm. you know, so you're you're kind of up against it. But I think I can't imagine someone making a better film about Nixon than this. I really can't either. And it's interesting because when Selma uh, came out. Um, it, it also had, uh, you know, there's this kind of false, you know, controversy of, uh, uh, of historical accuracy and everything. And people got all up in arms and all that. Um, but I also read a lot of reviews of critics saying that, uh, that, that biopics should only focus on a specific point in a person's life. Mm. And while I understand where they're coming from, because, yeah, we, I've seen a ton of terrible biopics. And <laughs> There's a lot of them. Have, they always <laughs> have the same flaw. It's always, okay, this is the moment the person died, and here's this moment, and here's that moment, and then they're dead. And they're, they always <laughs> cover the same kind of scenes, and they're kind of cliche. At the same time, I look at a movie like Nixon, and I look at the scope that it has and the amount of things it covers. Um, yeah, they don't cover, uh, you know, the very moment of Nixon's death or whatever, but they cover all this stuff from his childhood. They cover a lot of the major points, uh, you know, that people are, are, we're already familiar with even. And, and I would hate to think that we don't have a place uh, for biopics like this, that, that are ambitious enough to, to cover this story in such an epic way. Yeah. I mean, it's high risk, high reward. Like I think mm -hmm. it's probably simpler to make a movie about, you know, six months of a person's life rather than, 40 or 50 years of their life. But when it's done right, yeah. it can be pretty incredible. All right. Uh, so let's jump to the theme, the theme of insecurity. And to me, this is what, this is what moves Nixon forward. Like this is, this is what drives him in a lot of ways. It even drives him to the point of almost ending his marriage. Like the thing that galls him most is that this man, JFK, who is in direct, he's like, he couldn't be more different. From Nixon in many ways, whether you're talking about physically, the way he presents, all mm -hmm. those things. So it like taps in to that insecurity to the point that he just can't deal with the fact that he lost. Like there's a scene, there's a really great scene between him and Pat where he's sitting down next to her and he, and he just talks about how much he hates losing. And I think that really 
is because of how insecure he was. If he was secure in who he was and his skills and his talents, losing is still going to sting, but it's not going to be something that's going to stay with you and haunt you like it does him. Where now? Where where do you think the insecurity like directly came from in his life? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's uh, the easiest uh, thing to look at is, of course, his uh, his relationship with with his mother. Uh, the fact that you know, no matter how hard he tried to be to be good, to be you know her dog, he even <laughs> says at one point in the film, it's still like never quite enough. Like she expects perfection and a lot of that comes from the religious background and those you know i'm a you know i'm a therapist by trade and many people will come in and get really annoyed that i ask them questions about their parents like oh i don't want to talk about that but mm-hmm. like it affects everything in your whole life it's it's your most important relationship it's your first relationship and it it will it will guide you in the relationships throughout the rest of your life like it's important and i think you know not getting any attention from his father who seemed to be pretty pretty violent and pretty gruff and then only getting this negative attention from his mom, it cannot have helped that insecurity. And, and yet it's interesting that the one scene we, we get, uh, the one really important scene we get in the very beginning of the movie um, is this corn husk cigarette that he's tried to hide from her and her kind of showing mercy uh, you know, to him for that. Right. And, 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 and it's interesting. You wonder what, what makes him – you wonder why he didn't leap to the logic of, okay – honesty is the best policy kind of thing. Um, yeah. It's in interesting that. that his career becomes marred by dishonesty as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, he tried so hard. And I think some of it is because he tried so hard to be good for her after that. And it still wasn't enough. And I, I, I think the pressure also from, so the death of the two of his two brothers and, and uh, at one point, uh, Tony Goldwyn, who is playing the older brother, uh, he, he says, you know, they, oh, yeah, you'll get to go to law school now because of my death and all that. And that's exactly what happens. Um, right. I think that puts so much pressure on his shoulders and everything. Uh, you know, almost see it in, in the way Nixon holds himself and, in, in, you know, his shoulders were always very rigid and upright and everything. Um, and so, you, you know, uh, I think that contributed to, you know, his insecurity. The, the scene, I think, that, that presents your theme uh, the best is this really well staged uh, scene uh, in, in about like the two hour mark between him and Pat? And it starts with Pat making a sexual move. Well, I mean, as sexual as Pat Nixon ever ever, ever got, <laughs> I, I imagine. Um, oh, buddy! <laughs> and him saying, saying, "Oh no, no, I'm I'm not Jack Kennedy." And then, mm. and then him kind oh, of, yeah, that's him right, kind of tracing around the room and him moving away from her as though she is like attacking him or hunting him or something, uh, even though she's not, she's, she's coming to him from a place of love uh, and, and really trying to understand his neuroses and how he could be this hard on himself, e- even while, even while he's president. And, and I believe it's after their daughter's marriage. So, you know, you would think, uh, you know, he would be on top of the world, uh, you know, but he's talking about his enemies. He's talking about all the people out there who who, who are true. He says, if I if I expose even the bit of you know my real self, they'll they'll tear my insides out and everything. Yeah. And and he really and he's a little drunk and everything, so maybe he's a little bit more forthcoming than usual. Right. Um, and I really I really feel like that that might have been the central fear of Richard Nixon's life. That and I, I think a lot of uh, politicians probably hold on to that kind of fear right and in a lot of ways that fear kind of came true like they did tear him apart when the truth came out absolutely over 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 a 
a third-rate burglary that that that, that <laughs> didn't didn't gain him anything. He he won yeah. in 1972 with one of the biggest electoral college college victories in in history. Um, he didn't need to to uh, break into the uh, DNC headquarters at the Watergate. Yep. There there was nothing was gained from it, and it was just, it was just a bunch of really petty, stupid shit. Yep. That that caught up with him. <laughs> well, I think that's the perfect place to end. Petty, stupid shit. I like it. Um, so let's talk about the, the the new movie that's coming out, which is, of course, Snowden. Um, I actually just uh, was in the movie theater uh, the other day watching Hell or High Water and saw a trailer for it. And I I have reservations. <laughs> so Well, well, well I'm going you know, to say what I always say. Probably shouldn't have watched the trailer. Well, the reason I have reservations <laughs> is because of – we talked about in this movie that I feel like Anthony Hopkins danced on that border between doing the voice and not doing the voice. And it looks like Joseph Gordon-Levitt is just full-on doing the voice. Like he's – apparently that's the that's the era of Joseph Gordon-Levitt we're in now is him doing – uh, silly vocal tics because you know he was he was just playing uh, a Frenchman in, in the water. That's which, what I was going to say, which yeah. I think is is better than people gave it credit for. Like I I enjoyed it, um, and that particular character I've seen the documentaries based on, and that guy's accent was even more over the top than Joseph Gordon Levitt's movie. So I didn't really have an issue with it. But in this, I just feel like it's such a serious topic, and I do think an important topic, and it's it was distracting even in the trailer. And granted. In the flow of an entire film, it might not be. Um, but other than that, like it looks, it looks good. It looks exciting. It looks like Oliver Stone is kind of back in his wheelhouse. Although I'm a little bit sick of all these Oliver Stone commercials with uh, telling him to throw away your phone. Uh, you see in front of every movie right now. Uh, but then, of course, on the screen, you know, AMC Theaters says like, uh, we don't actually think that. Uh, just turn your phone off for now, but turn it back on and download our app, which is <laughs> a little uh, a little insulting. Uh, but the movie itself, I think, you know, it, it doesn't show much in the trailer, which is good. But I think there's a lot of fodder here for discussion and for a good film. I'm really looking forward to it. I was I was kind of disappointed by Citizen Four. Um, the documentary, yeah. the uh, Laura Poitras. Um, I just thought I just thought it didn't cover anything that you didn't get from, from the you news. know reading about it. <laughs> right. Yeah, like, like it's like if you had read the news, if you had been informed, <laughs> it was really bizarre. It was like it was like like suddenly a bunch of liberals who don't read the news were all were all like, oh, Citizen Four, this is so amazing. It's like like do, do people read? Right. Um, <laughs> nope. And, and so I think. <laughs> If he can do what he did with Nixon and he can sort of make this story come alive, I would hope that it would build awareness for it. Um, and I, I did have a problem with Joseph Gordon-Levitt's uh, accent in uh, The Walk. Many that's, that's did. The thing I, that's the thing I really I, – I, I actually like that movie. Um, but yeah, his accent was, was bad. I, I usually don't care about accents and everything, but I, I did find it distracting and everything. Uh, you can only go up. From there, um, so <laughs> it's a good way to look at it. <laughs> and I find I find the uh, phone commercials humorous. They're they're a lot better than the other shit you see at the ads of the movies. Ooh, high praise there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I um you know we saw we've seen a a sort of rediscovery of Martin Scorsese in the last uh, ten years or so. Uh, he his career was very different before yeah. like Gangs of New York and all that. He he was really struggling to find commercial success and everything. And and I would love, I would love it if we could see something like that happen with stone um, so that we could at least, you know, this this is one of the most talented filmmakers uh, alive. Probably only has another 15 
uh, years left in them or so uh, right. of making movies. Uh, you know, let's, you know, let, you know, I, I think I would love to see more movies made by Stone that are in his wheelhouse. Uh, I, while I enjoyed uh, Savages, uh, you know, I, I don't know if, if that's the most uh, valuable use of Stone's talents and everything. Yeah, so. I mean, I totally agree. I feel like I feel like cinema is better off when Oliver Stone is working well. I think he's one of those directors who is always going to pick subject matter uh, that is controversial and will make you think and make you take a stand. And I think I think that's a good thing. So I hope you're right. I hope we get back to that Oliver Stone. And I and I think I think I want to say I think there is a strange bias uh, against Stone uh, from the film critics. And, and yeah. you know, I, I, because I think the idea of a filmmaker with a political viewpoint is seen as somewhat passe uh, to them. Right. And we're in the age of like, we're the age of like, like, you know, oh, spotlight, look how hard hitting that is and, <laughs> and all that. But it, but it's like gutless. It's very, it's very safe, gutless filmmaking. And that's not what Stone is all about. And so right. film critics aren't really going even it, but I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. Uh, but, but I would say that even if it is a great film, it, it's likely that the film critics aren't going to, um, you know, praise it as, as you know, so you, my, my basic point is don't look at the metacritic average you know you should just go see it for oliver stone alone all right i like it all right um so before you go why don't you uh actually uh i just want to mention i have nothing to pimp out i just want to mention something i'm going to pimp out something for you since you refuse (laughs) to do it um ben of course is on twitter like everyone else but he also has a vimeo account where some of his work is up and he has he did it a while ago of course but there was a philip c philip seymour hoffman retrospective which was tremendously moving and well put together and just fantastic work so uh why don't you give people um some sort of link to get to that because i think there's there's some enjoyment to be gained from that well i don't have i don't know the link uh (laughs) well but it's it's connected to your twitter you can uh it is oh yeah yeah if you just go to my twitter my twitter handle is at zookby uh and there's a link to my vimeo page there uh i do a lot of uh, film montages and stuff, and so you can see uh, montages uh, from um, the all the from like 2015, 2014, 2013, 2012. I've been doing them for uh, several years now, and they're they're pretty popular and everything. Um, and there are other montages that aren't on my Vimeo, and I don't know how you're going to find those. But, you know, <laughs> if, you, if you just search Ben Zook on Vimeo, you'll probably find something uh, you like. I would hope. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. If you want to connect with the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that, the best of which is to follow me on Twitter at PCCaseStudy or go to followingfilms.com and check out some other great movie podcasts like the True Bromance Film Podcast and The Best and the Worst of the Best. But if you really want to go the extra mile, go to patreon.com slash study, and there you can donate to the show on a per-episode basis and even get great rewards for doing so. And there's one more way you can connect with me. I am actually doing written reviews now for a website, and that website is The Film Faculty. So that's thefilmfaculty.wordpress.com, and you can see uh, just about weekly my movie reviews in written form as well. All right, next time you hear me, I will hopefully be doing a new release episode on Oliver Stone's latest, Snowden. So until then, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch.
so we have a whole lot of time to talk about Nixon. We could talk about it for three and a half hours. I really think we could. Uh, no. 